Hello, I'm Becca, the owner of Meet Cute Romance Bookshop, and this is the Meet Cute Book Pod. Today we have my chat with Martha Waters, the author of the historical rom-coms To Have and to Hoax, To Love and to Loathe, To Marry and to Meddle, and her latest, To Swoon and to Spar, which was released April 11th. You'll hear Martha talk about her self-directed crash course in historical romance after reading Julia Quinn for a graduate school assignment, the twists and turns on the road to becoming a published author, building comedy into her story structures, tropes she loves and would love to write, and her strategy for researching the world of the Regency, or at least the Regency as it appears in historical romance. Before I transition to that interview, I'll introduce Martha. Martha Waters was born and raised in sunny South Florida, where she spent her childhood reading lots of British children's books and scribbling away in notebooks. She studied history and international studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where she also earned a master's degree in library science. Her books have received starred reviews and frequently appear on lists of most anticipated romances. By day, she works as a children's librarian in coastal Maine and loves sundresses, gin cocktails, and traveling. And now, through the magic of podcasting, here's my conversation with Martha Waters. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to chat about your books and your writing and your new book coming out April 11th. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Let's get started by talking a little bit about your background. So what is your romance reading background? Did you come to romance young? Did you come to it relatively recently? Um, so I guess somewhere in the middle, kind of, I don't have the like charming story that a lot of romance authors have of like stealing romance books from like their mom's nightstand or something. Um, I read a lot of Georgette Hare when I was in college, but other than that, I wasn't really reading romance at all. And I actually, I'd always wanted to write, but I wanted to write for kids and teens originally. And I spent the early to middle part of my twenties trying to do that unsuccessfully and not being able to get an agent for multiple manuscripts I'd written. But then when I was in my last semester of grad school and I was getting my library degree, we had to, well, I took this class called popular materials where you have to read a book from a different genre each week. And we did romance one week, of course. And I kind of just picked at random an author that I had like seen people talking about on the internet. So I picked a Julia Quinn book. It wasn't one of the Bridgerton ones. It was um the last book and I can't remember what the trilogy is called, but it's 10 things I love about you is um that was my gateway romance book. And I was delighted by it and immediately read everything else, like literally everything else she'd ever written in like a two month period of time. Like I just read her whole backlist. Um, And then I went and I actually emailed a librarian, a local librarian who I knew read a lot of romance and asked her for other like kind of read-alikes like Julia Quinn. So I read like all of Sarah McLean and all of Tessa Dare and all of Eloisa James. And this is all like within like a one year period. At that point, I was like, I feel like I'm reading a lot of romance. So I'm going to try writing one. I guess it was, it was like almost 10 years ago now, but it feels later than a lot of people come to the genre who are really passionate readers. Yeah. But you did like a crash course. Oh yeah. I was like, my brain is very much like, a. <laughs> I'm either completely uninterested in a thing or I'm like hyper-focused on it. Um, so like once I like realized that there was this whole genre that I hadn't been reading previously that I really liked, I was like, well, I guess I'm going to only read this for like the next two years. So that's basically what I did. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, that's mostly what I do. <laughs> <laughs> so you always wanted to be a writer, but you were thinking like kid lit and you are a children's librarian now, right? right? Mm-hmm. How is that balance for you? Are you doing your day job library and day job writing balance situation well? 
Yeah. I think it actually ended up being for the best that I pivoted. I mean, I, I don't know. I still think that maybe someday I would like to try writing for kids, um, but not like definitely not in the immediate future at all. And I think it ended up being for the best because it gives me a, like a nice bit of separation because otherwise I feel like if I was trying to write for kids and also spending my days being a children's librarian, it would just be a lot. I think I would be in my head about it a lot, kind of like, cause there's so many like incredibly talented authors out there in all genres. I would have the same issue right now if I was an adult librarian writing romance also. And like, that's true and it's great, but I think it's hard to like kind of immerse yourself in it all day and then also come home um, and write at the same time. So for me, it's been really helpful to, like I get to spend my days being around books and doing what I love, but there's just a little bit of separation from the books that I'm dealing with at work and the ones that I'm writing, which I find helpful. And I also, I, I only work part-time at the library now. Um, I, I dropped down to part-time when I changed jobs a couple of years ago. And I found that to be really helpful also because I was definitely kind of, as a lot of writers who write and work full-time know, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> um, so I have definitely, I feel like I've got a good balance right now. And I feel like it's working pretty well for me. Honestly, the schedules that some writers keep, I do not, I am impressed and baffled. And I want to like send them all off to a little retreat where they can get a nice bath and some tea and like not do anything for three days. Yeah. Well, like some of the ones I know, like, I mean, when I wrote, when I was working full time, I would write a lot at like five o'clock in the morning, which looking back on it now, I'm like, wow, that seems really exhausting. And I'm glad I don't do that anymore. Um, <laughs> but also there are some writers who, I mean, I do like a book a year, which feels like the absolute most I can manage. Like it is like, I'm writing like flat out for a lot of the year to manage a book a year. Whereas there's some writers who are writing full time, but they're doing like two or three books a year. And I'm like, I don't understand how you're doing this. I'm so impressed. Yeah. I, there are some writers who are just, I don't know, their brains work differently. I don't understand yeah. the speed at which words are coming out of their brain. No, it seems yeah. impossible to me, but I'm, I'm in awe. <laughs> yeah. It's a gift to all of us. Cause then we get the books, but <laughs> exactly. yeah, it, it also does make me feel like somehow there should be more time in my day and I don't know where they're finding it. Well, it's really funny because I've had multiple friends since I started publishing books say to me, like, you know, I'm, I'm much more like I used to get impatient when authors would only write a book a year because I'd be like, come on, like, I want to read more of these, write them faster. But now that I've seen you writing these and I realize how much time you spend doing this, I feel like I'm more forgiving of, of, of writers for taking so long. And I'm like, a year is not that long. Well, it's interesting too, right? Because I feel like in romance, there are so many authors who are writing so quickly that readers get conditioned to like getting mm -hmm. a book like two or three times a year. Whereas yeah. like one book a year is like steady and slow for a romance yeah. author and like very fast for most other genres. Yeah. That's like, that would in any other genre, people would be like, wow, they write a book a year. That's like quite solid. I know. And I, like the only saving grace of romance is like the books are, I mean, like they're fairly long. Like my books end up being around 90,000 words. So like, they're not short, but they're not like super long. I don't know how the authors, I don't know how they're doing it are the ones who are fantasy authors who are still managing to write a book a year. Cause it's like a series. I think there's a lot of like pressure from the publishers to keep them on like a yearly schedule. I do not know how they're writing these 500 page fantasy books, like a book a year. I'm like, I, I don't understand. Like <laughs> it just seems impossible to me. <laughs> Well, you're writing one book a year and they are delightful. And I want to talk you. about the books. So you just, your book coming out now is the fourth book in a series mm -hmm. and they are 
what are we compare their companion standalones? Yeah. Yeah. The idea with each one, I think what I've succeeded with more with some books than others in the series, the idea is that you should be able to read any of them and like use it as your entrance point to the series. I feel like this, the new one to swim into spar probably maybe works the best out of any of them after the first one for that purpose. Cause the heroine in this one is a new character and she hasn't been seen in the previous books. But yeah, I think when I was like going on sub like talking to my agent about it. We were calling them like linked standalones, basically. It was like, we actually didn't give the the series name, Regency Vows. We didn't actually give it that name until well after the first book had come out. Like someone from my publisher kind of came to my editor and was like, can you like name this series since there are going to be two of them now? And we were like, oh yeah, probably should do that. (laughs) Wait, okay. So you had said you'd gone on sub for kid lit books and not had any success. I queried agents for kid oh, lit. Okay. I couldn't, I couldn't even get an agent. I got some like nibbles where they requested full manuscripts, but they always had like a fair number of notes. So I never actually got an agent. So I didn't get an agent until I wrote my first, which what turned into my first book for adults. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. But then you got your agent for this. You went on mm-hmm. sub and did you sell it as a single book? Your first book? Yeah, we sold it as a single book. And I was actually I was on sub for a while, but so I spent most of the time I was on sub writing the second book, which in retrospect, I'm like, wow, that would have been really annoying if the first one hadn't sold. That would have been like a lot of wasted effort, but also it's like really good to give yourself something else to focus on because being on sub is terrible. And anyone who says otherwise is lying. So I would, I'd actually, the day after we got the offer for the first book, I finished my first draft of the second one, but then I had to like put it aside for almost a year before I could like finish writing it. Cause I was editing the first one and stuff, but yeah, we sold it as a, in a one book deal. And so we just like each year we went back to my editor and was like, Hey, here's another one. Um, <laughs> And then finally with this one, with the deal for the fourth book, this one was a two book deal. So I've been able to tell everyone like, yes, there's a fourth book and a fifth book. And then that will be it. Like that's it for the series. That's been nice to kind of, for the longest time, people would ask me about like certain characters and I'd kind of feel like, we'll see. Like I would like to write a book for them, but I can't promise anything because publishing is a weird industry. Um, So it's been nice with this one to finally be able to say, yes, the final remaining characters that you were asking about are going to get a book. So and then we're done. <laughs> so how does that work in terms of plotting and like planning out a series? Because your fifth book, which is not the one that's coming out, your fourth mm-hmm. book is coming out, but the next book is a couple that definitely was like teased in book one. And also, yep. so you had them in mind the whole time. Well, so I would not recommend doing things the way <laughs> the way I have done them with this series. Part of it was just me being new, a new author. This is my first time I'd written a romance novel when I was writing the first book. And I was just so enthusiastic about the genre. And my favorite thing when I'm reading romances is when like they have a bunch of friends, you can kind of tell that they're like the author is setting up like future couples and stuff. And I was like, oh, it'd be kind of fun to do that in mine. So I, and I kept writing these characters and just kind of like walked on the page and I was like, oh, wow, I love you. You're great. You're like a fully formed character. I want to give you a book. And so it kind of it got a little out of hand on the first one where I suddenly had like three different viable couples for like future books. And I was like, wow, I really hope someone buys this first one so that I'm able to write the rest of the book. But the characters in the that are going to be in the fifth book, West and Sophie. Um, that was kind of an accident actually. Cause Sophie wasn't in the first draft of the first book. She was like, I, I invented her for plot purposes basically in the second draft. And then I just immediately was like, oh, here's a whole tragic backstory for her that I'm just going to like thread in. Um, and now everyone has like been asking me for like the past three plus years of whether I'm giving her a book or not. So yeah, I would say perhaps it's fun to drop in little hints of what's to come. I would advise against doing it to the degree that I did. <laughs> 
did it in my first couple of books because it's been a pain in the behind, honestly. Like I have to go back before I write each new book and I'll like name search the characters who it's a book I'm writing to like make a note of everything I've ever said about them on page to make sure nothing that I'm writing in their book is contradicting something that I'd already said about them in a previous book. And I've had a lot of cause to like curse my past self um, in the past couple of years while writing these later books in the series. It's been a challenge. It seems really hard to keep it like organized and under control. Honestly, I'm <laughs> impressed. I, I'm, I'm trying. I was waiting for a reader to like spot something because people like, I definitely have readers that know my books better than I do. Cause I don't read them after they get published. I keep telling myself that someday I'm going to like go back, but I'm like maybe 10 years from now, like the last time I look at past pages is the last time I will ever read that book. Um, so I have not reread like the first one in like over three and a half years now. So I'm, I'm, I, I grow increasingly nervous with each book that someone's going to spot something. <laughs> something that's a mistake. That's very funny. Yeah. Once it's done, you've probably read it 600 times. Yeah. You don't want to, you don't ever want to see that again. No. And just the thought of reading it, like in its actual like I doing past pages is bad enough because that it's like so close to being the finished product then that it's already like, oh, well, I can't. I'm like, I mean, I'm supposed to be like catching small like grammatical errors and stuff at this point. I'm not supposed to be actually like making really significant changes. And so it's already hard to read it knowing that like you can change a line or two here or there, but like let's 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 keep it under control here. Past pages are formatted. Yeah, they they're formatted. Like- it's like what you see when you when you read like an advanced copy of a book, that formatting is what I see when I see first pass pages. And I do two rounds of pass pages with mine. So the like version that you read as an arc, there's like I've I've gone through it twice more after that to catch some stuff, but it's like pretty minor stuff usually. Um, so the idea of reading it in like a finished format where I literally can't change anything about it, like it makes me like want to break out in hives. Like I find it horrifying to even contemplate. I really hope that I, and I think I probably will at some point, like enough time will pass and I'll have enough distance from the series that I'll be able to go back and reread them. And I like want to do that. Cause I am like very fond of all the characters. And I want to kind of see how it all works, like reading them all back to back to back to back to back once the series is complete. But that day is a long, a long time from now. Like <laughs> I will not be doing it anytime soon. Well, it may be causing you many headaches, but I really enjoy, as you said that you also do in other people's books, when things are foreshadowed and teased and all sort of intertwined. So you get like, you can read each book by itself, but if you read all of them, you get extra special little Easter egg things. Exactly. Yeah. I Which is say, a very Julia Quinn thing, actually. It is. I think, I mean, yeah. Coming to her books is like literally the, basically the first romance novels that I read. I was just always so delighted when one of the siblings would like pop onto the page or especially one that had already had their book happen. And I was just like, oh, it's so fun. Give me more of that. Like I remember reading the, the final Bridgerton book and being like, oh, it's good. But I wish the siblings had been on page more. So I've kind of taken that preference of mine and run with it because I, my supporting characters are on page, on page a lot. Um, and it's getting like to the point where I have to like rate it in, like writing the fifth one, which I'm currently on deadline for. It's due tomorrow, actually. Um, oh my gosh, I'm so <laughs> sorry that you're talking to me right no, now. No, I'm actually, I'm, I'm almost, I need to do like one last search for a couple of words that I'm pretty sure I overused, but I'm like almost done with it basically. I mean, with this initial draft, it's going to go to my editor that no doubt she will have many things to say about. <laughs> but it's gotten so far, I'm like, okay, well, this is like the last book in the series. I have four established couples now. I also have like a whole set of like complicated, like sibling, like in-law type dynamics. I like made a, like a set of interconnected family trees for myself when I was writing this. Cause I was like, I really think this is getting kind of complicated. And once I drew it out, I was like, it is getting complicated. So sometimes I'll have to just like cut characters from scenes where it's like a big group scene where I'm like, 
I don't think that person really needs to be here. And if this is a new reader to the series reading the, this final book, they're going to have no idea what's going on. So let's simplify. Yeah. Closing out a series that you've been spending so much time with must be tricky. How is How has writing that been? It's been hard. It has been not as hard. The worst one in the whole series to write was to marry and to meddle the third one because I started writing it in May 2020, which is a really horrible time to try to Why? start what, writing a book. What was happening like, in yeah, like what could what could possibly be um making it hard to write like light, funny books? Also, it like it was the first one since I had written an initial very, very rough draft of Love and to Loathe before to have it hooked even sold. The third one was really the first time I was trying to write a book with the pressure of knowing that it really might get published. So I don't know, a lot of authors talk about like second book syndrome and I kind of just got that with my third one. I think because of the timing where like I kind of avoided it with the second one, that one was actually really easy to write because I wasn't writing it after my first book had come out. This one has been easier than that because I think I learned some things from that experience and I've just kind of like slowed down and tried not to rush myself and trusted in the process. I don't know. It's hard to write two characters that you introduced like four books ago who people have been asking you about for years because it's just like a lot of pressure. And I know there'll be people who will be disappointed because like it's inevitable. You can't please everyone. It's also hard to write two characters that have a lot of backstory that happened like before the series even began. Um, So it's been kind of tricky to figure out how to balance that. And then also it's just like, all the emotion of like, I, I don't want to be done writing these characters, but also like, I think by the time I'm done editing this one, I actually will be ready to be done writing these characters because <laughs> it's just starting to feel like a lot. But also I, I, I've got the initial idea for to have a hoax around Easter 2015. So we're coming on like eight years ago now that I first got the idea for the first book in this series. And so it's like a really big chunk of my life to have spent with one group of characters. So when I started to think about that, then I get like almost like paralyzed or I can't write at all because then I get like emotional about it. So I try not to think about that. I'm sure I'll think about it a lot more once the book is actually done and it's like time to start doing publicity for it and stuff. But yeah, it's so it's been it's been it's been tricky in a lot of different ways is the TLDR for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean the amount of time that you are just spending in this world that you've created. Yeah, I always joke that I like have way spent more, way more time thinking about these characters than I've spent thinking about like my friends and family for the past like 5 years or more. Um is like almost true in terms of just like being hyper-focused on them for like long chunks of time. It's weird. And just the way, I don't know, especially just with writing romances where like each set of characters gets to kind of take their turn in the spotlight. It's such a fun way to like write a series. I've always had like, I'll finish each book and I'll always have something to look forward to like, oh, it'll be their turn next. And so finishing up the fifth one, I'm like, oh, now it's all over. (laughs) And I had to like meet new characters. Like what? (laughs) Then you write a Christmas novella. Exactly. (laughs) I am. It is funny. I am. I haven't done epilogues in any of my books because they all take place pretty close together. And it always felt kind of like I weird, like I would be jumping ahead of like the future books to do an epilogue almost. And I just like never felt comfortable with it. Plus I really like the like closing lines of several of my books. I never wanted to mess with it by adding an epilogue, Um, but I am going to do an epilogue for the final book and I haven't written it yet. Like I'm turning it into my editor without having written it because I don't like, I'm just, I'm like putting it off for as long as possible because I'm like, I'm worried I'm going to start crying while I'm writing it. (laughs) Also, I like, I think it's gonna be fun and it's kind of like a treat for myself. So I'm waiting until I've done at least one round of revisions before I like give myself the treat of getting to write the epilogue and just see them all being happy together. <laughs> yeah. Cause that's going to be like no plot, just vibes. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's going to be like a fanfic essentially. <laughs>
I want to talk about the humor in your books and sort of the the tone of them. It's really interesting that you read a lot of Georgette Hare before you really got into romance, I think, because Georgette Hare is like a an original, right? She was writing Regencies and sort of popularized the idea of Regency romance mm-hmm. in like the mid-20th century with these very witty, bantery, chased closed door, drawing roomy books. Mm-hmm. And I see some of that DNA in your writing. Like, how would you describe the tone or like the voice of your books, which feels very consistent throughout them? It's interesting. I definitely, like the reason I wanted to write Regencies specifically, like that subgenre was because it does have such a great DNA dating back to hair of being very like bantery and funny, which I knew immediately was definitely like the kind of tone I wanted in my books. Um, I don't think I would do well writing super serious books books um and it's funny because I also like I don't know like like Hayer's books obviously like she did a lot of research and her books feel very old-fashioned and very like they are designed to feel like they're really about Regency characters and I've tried to strike a different balance in mine where I want them to feel I never know how to describe it because I have a lot of readers who read a lot of contemporaries who don't actually read that many historicals and always say they like my books because they feel more contemporary than some historicals, like obviously hair, um, <laughs> but like other examples also do. And so I'm always trying to strike this balance of like, I don't want to sound completely anachronistic and I want the humor to be a little bit British feeling um, and sort of that like dry British humor. I, I'm like gravitate towards just as a reader anyways. And so trying to, I don't, I, I, I don't know. I never know if I've gotten the balance right or not, but the thing that's really interesting to me is that people who know me in real life, they come to my books and they just walk away saying that they just, the books sound like me. They find it really interesting when people make comparisons between like the dialogue or just kind of like the humor, the tone of my books and other romance authors, because they're like, well, maybe, but to me, they just sound like you. Like, this is how, like, this they they, they say that, like, the voice in them and just, it just to them just sounds like me and my humor. So I think it's, it's interesting, like, switching from, since obviously I'm writing from a new point of view each time I write a new book. And so, like, the character's voice changes a little bit. But I think I, I kind of keep my voice underneath the character's voice, like, remaining consistent. So there's a lot of little... Like the way the dialogue and the banter works will, will probably vary from book to book because it depends on who's talking. But the humor that lies in just like these little asides that I'll like make little observations and stuff, I think that remains more consistent from book to book because that's on that, that's just me. <laughs> that's so interesting that you have a lot of readers who mostly read contemporaries because I do, I mean, now that you mention it and I hadn't thought about it this way before, but like as a bookseller, right? I think historicals don't, are not currently as popular as contemporaries, mm-hmm. right? Like subgenres shift in popularity over right. time. And I love historicals. And I think there are a lot of people who are like a little intimidated by them, who don't gravitate toward them. And we give your books to a lot of people. And I hadn't quite put my finger on why that is, but I actually do think it they have, they feel Regency, but they also do have the, the underlying humor, maybe just like the structural humor or the character humor does have a very like contemporary sensibility. Yeah. And I always like there's within historical romance, I mean, obviously it's like a huge, huge genre. Um, and so you get all different types of historicals in terms of like the amount of like historical feeling there is in them. So like I'm currently in the middle of a deep backlist dive on Meredith Duran, who obviously writes very different historicals than what I write. Like she wrote 
lot of Victorians, they're super angsty and they're super detailed in terms of the way they engage with the actual historical events of the time period in a way that's like, honestly, it's so interesting. Like I love reading her books because like I legitimately learn things about history when I'm reading them. And I know there are some, a lot of romance readers who really like prefer that style of historical, which is great because there are like great authors out there who write books like that. Mine are definitely not like that. Mine are, I always call them like period pieces. Like I like playing around with the Regency era because I think it's a really interesting time period because it was such a short little nine year window into history that has such an outsized cultural impact on us still today. And I always like say that the reason it's so popular is because it kind of hits that sweet spot of like feels old fashioned enough to be romantic, but not so old fashioned that it feels foreign to us as a modern audience. So I like the time period. I think it's fun to play in, but I like one of the things that drew me to it is that it's so familiar familiar to like readers and like just because it's so like kind of part of our culture at this point that I knew I could kind of get away with ignoring the actual historical events that were happening at the time and just kind of playing around with these characters in this period setting that would feel like oh yes it's in the olden days in England but also feels deeply familiar to readers and so I think that also makes it easier for me to kind of get away with the sort of modern, like a little bit of a more modern tone to the humor and stuff because it's sort of set within this incredibly familiar historical period also. I thought about it a lot over the past few years because when I was writing it, I was just like with my first book, I didn't know what I was doing. And I was just like, I'm just going to write like a Regency romance, like my own version of a Regency romance because I love this subgenre so much. And it was only once I got an agent and got an editor and they started talking about how to position it. And like, they immediately kind of spotted the potential for it to have crossover appeal for like contemporary romance readers. And they even like, when we were getting blurbs for the first book, they really intentionally wanted to get some contemporary authors to blurb it and not just historical ones. So it's definitely been a thing that they had in mind from the beginning. And so I've had to start like considering it more as I've gone on because it wasn't like in the front of my mind when I was writing the first book. But once like someone pointed out to me that like aspect of the books, I started, it's just, I mean, it's, hard, it's obviously hard to like look at your own work with the same eyes that like an outsider will have. Um, but it's made me like more aware of that. You're also getting, I love the covers of your books, but they are they're so cute and they've shifted, right? You had a different cover on the first one and then they got, it got like rebranded with the second one. Yeah, they did. The the first one had the cute little like silhouettes or whatever. And I really loved that cover a lot, but they switched with the second one because they wanted it to be more clear to readers just looking at the cover that like it was a rom-com like they wanted you to be able to glance at it like on a display in a bookstore and be like oh yeah that's a rom-com like this looks like all these contemporary rom-coms that are so popular right now and I do think that maybe it was a little bit of an issue with the cover for the first one because I remember seeing back in my younger days when I still actually looked at reviews I was tagged in I remember seeing a couple times people um who were like reviewed it there would be people asking in the comments, like, oh, is this, is this is this a romance or is it like historical fiction? So I do wonder if maybe the cover of like the original cover for the first one wasn't like clearly signaling the genre as much. I think that was probably a smart shift that they decided to make with the second one to, to change up the cover style. But they're, they're yeah, so cute. I mean, I like the cover, the original cover of the first one too. I'm first of all, I'm very glad that when they made the shift, they also changed the first one because it would have driven me truly nuts. If the first I one know. listen, we can we can thank Bridgerton for that because they originally changed it just for the ebook. And then Bridgerton came out and they were like, which like, you know, like bumped sales for like everything Regency for a little while. And I'm pretty sure that is like the sole reason they did a second print run of the first one with the new cover. So uh thank you, Netflix. Thank you, Shonda Rhimes. <laughs> 
So the humor in your books is sort of everywhere. I feel like there's banter humor, there's humor in the narration, which you mentioned, which is maybe the way that you have such like a strong sort of through line of voice. And there's also just really great structural humor, I think, in the premises of all of them. Like each one of them is very high concept. And anytime I tell somebody, like it's very easy to sell your books to people because in two sentences, I can be like, okay, so she pretends to be dying because she's estranged (laughs) from her husband. Okay, but wait. She gets married, but she actually wants him to leave. So she's going to pretend that the house is haunted. <laughs> like she's fake haunting the house. And people are like, I'm in. I'm like sold, dead. <laughs> are these coming to you? Do you spend a lot of time trying to figure out? I don't know. How is this? Do you just have a list? No, so it's interesting because I actually remember having a conversation about this with um, a really good writing writer friend of mine, Sarah Hogle, when our first books came out, because we debuted on the same day. So To Heaven to Hoax came out and then her debut was You Deserve Each Other. Which, and they both actually have... Like we always joke that they're like the historical and contemporary equivalent of each other because it's basically like a estranged married slash engaged couple in a prank war. And we talk, we would have been talking a lot for like years about the phrase rom-com and how it's kind of become like diluted and overused by publishing at this point to the point that it almost means nothing. And like, we both think that we write like true rom-coms and that like the humor feels very central to both of our books. And like, we've kind of all, always been like, what is it? Like what makes a rom-com? And to me, the place that I landed is that I do think that like the actual premise of the book should have the humor laced into it. Like it needs to feel, yeah, like key to the actual structure of the book. So it's definitely something I keep in mind when I'm planning my books is like, I want, I want them to feel funny down to like the very bones. Like I think some of them are more that way than others. Like I think to having to hoax with the fake consumption plot line and then the new one just went into spar with the fake haunting. I think those are probably the two that have the most clearly like high concept, like comedic premise, which makes both of them, I think like pretty easy to pitch. Cause it's kind of like, I, I can describe those, both the plots of both of those books. And like, yeah, like you said, like two sentences. The other ones are trickier because to love and to loathe, to marry and to metal and the fifth book with a title that I'm not allowed to share yet. Um, (laughs) Those were all ones where I was coming to them with characters, like with a pairing in mind already with like characters that I already knew really well and that I needed to find premises to fit. And like for To Love and To Love, it was kind of easy because that's like a super, like it's a sort of frenemies to lovers situation. So the characters had really great chemistry already. And so I felt like there was just any, I, I needed to figure out a premise that would just let them be bantering with each other for like 300 pages basically which is how I came up with them making a sex deal and also wagering on whether the hero would be married within a year but then like to marry into metal and the fifth one I feel like we're trickier because the they're both a little bit just the characters in them are maybe a little bit softer and more romantic than the other they're they're less sparring feeling than the other three are so I think maybe the premises for those ones it was trickier because I'm very committed like I want the books to feel funny at all parts even if there's some heavier stuff mixed in which I'm definitely struggling with in the fifth one right now um because it has probably like the saddest interweaving like threads of the storyline of all of them so yeah I just always I think about it like I, I think about a lot of tropes when I'm writing and I try not to approach a book solely with a trope in mind because I feel like we've almost gotten to this point in romance where there's almost like an overemphasis on tropes sometimes where it, like it's like you're expected to be able to sum up your book and like a list of tropes for like a Twitter thread or something and I find that it's not actually that helpful because I think a lot about a lot of my favorite romances I would find it really hard to summarize them in that way like I love Julianne Long I read her entire backlist last year and I think she's actually like a legitimate genius and most of her books I would have a really hard time just like boy 
boiling down to their tropes. So I try not to like simplify that much, but I do keep in mind like tropes that I think have like particularly good comedic value so that I can kind of play around with them. So that's definitely a thing that I keep in mind when I'm like approaching, approaching drafting. Do you have any tropes that you love and haven't had the chance to write yet that you really are excited to fit in somewhere? I really want to do a, well, so I'm I, there's a trope in book five. That was one that I had on my list that I was hoping to write at some point and that was perfect because I needed, without saying too much about it, because I don't think I'm allowed to. No one has explicitly told me that I'm not allowed to, but there's been like zero information about this book other than that it's happening on the internet. So I assume that I'm not allowed to talk about it. Um, <laughs> without getting too much away, I needed basically, since it's a, basically a second chance romance, I just needed a way to like force proximity between the characters and let them like talk a lot. And so I realized that a trope I had not yet written was perfect for this. Beyond that one, I would love to do a road trip romance at some point, which I tried to do with... <laughs> to marry into metal and then my like my original proposal that I submitted to my editor for that one involved basically instead of the Emily and Julian going back to London to like run the theater they were just gonna like be on the road and it was gonna be like full of hijinks and they were gonna be in their carriage for like days and then the carriage is gonna break down in a small village and they're gonna be stuck there and then the little local children are gonna be trying to put on a show and so Julian gets roped into helping the residents of this small English village like put on a theatrical production and Yada, yada, yada. And my editor was gently like, you know what I think would be great if they went back to <laughs> if they went back to London and ran his freaking theater. And I was like, okay, yes, you have a fair point. Um, I'll accept it. <laughs> so I would, yeah, I would think it'd be really fun to actually do a road trip romance. I really like writing them on like compressed timelines also. Like a few of my books take place only over like a few days, the first two. I guess. Yeah. The later three or longer. And I've like actually find that like fun to do it. It's like a short um, span of time. So I would love to do a road trip romance. I want to do one where they get snowed in also. And I almost attempted one day to attempt a friends to lovers because I think it's so hard to pull off. And whenever I read one that I actually think executes it well, I'm always like so impressed and think it's so good, but I really, it would have to really be like the right idea like I do not have an idea currently I have, a, I, have a, I, have a, I have ideas for a lot of books but not one that I think would be the right one for like a friends to lovers trope and I just I'm like honestly in awe of authors who can pull it off because I think it's so hard yeah it is hard because you have to have a reason right you have to have an inciting incident where you're like well you were friends for a long time and now you're lovers I'm like why why yeah. now why would you be friends for so long and not just already have gotten together if you like I it's it, but then when it's, when it's executed well it's so good so it, it's like so satisfying and like the fact that they know each other so well can be so like it just creates this tension as their like relationship is shifting and I like I love to read it when it's actually like really like executed perfectly but I just I think it's so hard <laughs> okay now I really do you have some favorite friends to lovers books because i desperately want those I'm like going to blank on it. I know I've put you on the spot now. Yeah, you're like, you I've totally never have. read a Friends to Lovers book No, because I feel like I read one not that long ago that I was really impressed by. And yeah, I have no idea what it was, but like, I feel like it was, what was it? It'll come to you. You can email me. I feel like it was a historical. If I didn't keep, I have a story graph, which is like the not Amazon version of Goodreads. And if I didn't immediately write down every book that I have read, like 
it would leave my brain. But if I look at the list, I'm like, oh, I remember that book. I loved it. Here are like 10 things about it, but otherwise completely gone. I got off. I mean, like I my Goodreads is still like it, it exists, but I don't get on it at all. I don't lie. I stopped logging my reading like years ago on there once I got a publishing deal because I just wanted to not ever log on to that website ever again. Um, that seems like a good choice. And then I didn't do Storygraph just for like, even though I, from everyone I know who's using it, they're like, oh yeah, it's much better than Goodreads. It's not on my Amazon, blah, blah, blah. But I also just, I have very little interest in being in any kind of like reader spaces on the internet anymore, just because even when it's like not about my books, like it just, I don't know. I just feel weird about it now. I get too in my head about it. So now I have, uh, fortunately... I had the backup, which I, when I was a freshman in college, I started writing down all my books that I read each year. And this is my second one of these little notebooks. But yeah, I write down every book I read in a given year. And this little notebook, I've read 33 so far in 2023, apparently. That's um, a lot. <laughs> I think I just hit 17 and was like really proud of myself. But the problem is that I love romance, but the titles, a lot of the titles are fairly similar. And so like this is not as good as like Goodreads was. Like with Goodreads, I could see the title, see the cover, and it would all come up like, oh, yes, yes, I remember this. Whereas just looking at the titles in the little notebook, I'm like, I'm still going to need to Google that. This actually really isn't like sparking anything for me. Yeah. No, romance titles get a little bit like alphabet soupy. Yeah. Even if they're good individually, they're just, there's a lot of puns and a lot of the same themes. Mm -hmm. And so it gets a little like people will ask, they'll be like, which book in your series was it when blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yes, I understand that you cannot remember all the titles because they all have the exact same like titling format. So, which of course started out because it was a pun with the first one for to happen to hoax. But then after that, it's like, well, we're here now. (laughs) This is our titling format for what turned out to be a five book series, which was not my original plan for it. So yeah, here we are with a lot of similar sounding titles. Also the new title, as soon as we picked the title to spoon into spar, I immediately turned around and emailed my agent about it and called it to spoon into spar. And I was (laughs) like, Ooh, I was like, I guarantee I'm going to make that mistake again. We're so close to the finish line of me not messing up the title of my own book publicly. I'll think good thoughts for you. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm so interested in the idea of American authors writing historical romances that are set in the UK Mm -hmm. for like a couple of reasons. The first is how are you doing your research? Do you have go-to books? Do you, have you just like imbibed so much other historical romance that you can basically just be like, I know all of the social conventions and what the names of all the different carriages are and it's fine. So like both, like when I wrote To Have and To Hoax, I thought about doing the research ahead of time, but then I was so like, it was the first time I tried writing a romance. It was the first time I tried writing a book for adults instead of like kids and teens, period. And so I was feeling very, like I had this fun, <laughs> fun fake consumption idea. And I really just wanted to dive in and not get bogged down and doing the research first. And I was like, you know, I've read a lot of historical romances at this point. I've read, I spent my entire youth reading like Jane Austen and the Brontes and watching a bajillion period pieces. And I have a degree in history. And I was like, you know what? I think I know enough that I can write a really rough draft and this mark everywhere I need like more information. And so in my first draft of that one, I just wrote without doing the research, just kind of based on like the shared sandbox of like our 21st century conceptualization of the Regency that we're kind of all playing around in as Regency authors and readers. But then I like highlighted every spot where I was like, oh, I need to know X, Y, Z. And it was a lot of, like, there was a lot of highlighting. So you don't realize what you need to know, especially since I wasn't writing one that was like super historical in terms of like dealing with any particular historical event happening at the time or something. There, I wasn't like so aware of what it was that I needed to know until I started writing. And then I was like, oh, what fabric would that dress be made out of? If it was like for the afternoon versus the evening. Like, oh, what type of carriage would they take to go to like riding around the park or something? Like, oh, like where, blah, blah, blah. Where would they live? What streets? Blah, blah. Like it, 
it was so many things I didn't realize I needed to know. And so as soon as I finished, I went out and got a copy of um, a book that I actually I got it from the library. And then I just went and bought my own copy afterwards. Um, Cause I've used it for every book. It's called Georgette Hayer's Regency world by Jennifer Kloster. And it's inc- an incredible resource because it's specifically designed at not, ju- it's not just about the Regency, but it's about like Hayer's version of the Regency, which is kind of what we're all adapting at this point. So it's all things that you would need to know for like your typical Regency romance. It's like how the upper classes were living, like how many servants would you expect to find in like a given house? What, what were the different salaries that people like different positions within a house would make? I mean, I took like copious notes on it. Even though I have the book, I also like just scanned random pages. So I would have those Oh yeah. I have like random, there's like a glossary of different Regency slang that I like scan. So I would have that, you know, I almost, I use almost none of them because I don't like my dialogue to sound like too historical. So I, I try to use the Regency slang fairly sparingly, but yeah, like different magazines of the time. It's, it's just like the most incredible resource. I use it with every book. And then when I was writing the third one, I actually did research ahead of time because that one's set in like the theater world. And I knew that I really knew nothing about it. So I read this um, book called A Time Traveler's Guide to British Theater, I think that's what it's called. And it like, it's actually really interesting, just like aside from my needs. And then for that one, I also, like, I still have them printed out, like a bajillion blog posts that I printed out about like theaters and like England over the years and stuff. And again, used almost none of this research <laughs> Like very little of it actually made it onto the page, but yeah, my goal is always, you know, for it not to be, I'm not striving for perfect historical accuracy as anyone who's read my books can probably tell. My goal is for there not to be such huge anachronisms that it would take your like casual reader out of the, out of the story when they're reading it. So that's usually what I'm striving for. I know that anyone who's like a true stickler for the Regency era, which there are a lot of like Regency readers who are like, they know so much about the Regency, which I think is incredible. And I'm probably not the author for them because I know a lot about the Regency, but I don't feel the need to put it all on page. And I also am very willing to sort of dispense with the history when it suits my purposes, which I'm fine with. And I think plenty of other readers are fine, are fine with, but yeah, so it's definitely a, it's a delicate balancing. I mean, with each book, there's always, I'll be writing, I'll be writing a draft and I'll be like, oh, I don't, I don't know that. And I'll have to highlight it and be like, back to my book. <laughs> Gotta go figure out what she's going to wear to this, this thing. <laughs> I mean, the mere idea of sitting down and being like, okay, like I'm writing a character who like wakes up in the morning and then goes to get breakfast. And I'm like, oh no, I have 12 questions already. What, what does waking up look like? Does somebody help her wake up? What does she wear to breakfast? What does she eat for breakfast? What time is breakfast? Is breakfast even a thing? Like I just could go on forever. And I, I just get paralyzed by the idea of it. It's also interesting. I find it actually more intimidating the idea of writing like contemporary books set within like a certain industry or something. I feel very nervous about the idea of writing a contemporary romance and being like, oh, I need to learn about whatever career I give my hero and heroine. Like I don't know anything about maybe it'll make them all librarians. <laughs> I'll have a librarian hero and a writer heroine and then I won't have to do any research. <laughs> I like when they're business people and the author clearly is like doesn't care about the business. There's no, we don't need it. And they're just like, oh yes, they disappeared to go do phone calls. And now they are back. (laughs) They have sent some emails and spoken to some people about money things. And here we are doing something not related to that. I read a contemporary a while back where they worked in something like super high powered and like long hour New York-y type job. I think they were like in consulting or something. Um, and very like entry level, like they're pretty young characters. And I was like, you know, I have never worked in consulting, but uh, I had a lot of high achieving friends at my undergrad and a lot of people who went into consulting after college because it's kind of a very lucrative uh, career option for a bunch of nerds. Um, and let me tell you, <laughs> 
I feel like they worked a lot more than the characters in this book were. It's the Grey's Anatomy thing, right? Where you're like, these people are doctors. Like, okay, sure, sure they sure. are. They have plenty of time to be getting up. Why not? Well, with, with Grey's Anatomy, that has long since stopped being their problem. And their current believability problem is like, how many bad things can happen at one hospital? Why would anyone agree to work or be treated even at this hospital? How is it even like allowed to exist? I don't understand. It's clearly cursed. Well, it's like that really long running, um, like BBC show Midsummer Murders, which is on mm-hmm. like season 22 or something. And it's set in like a very small English village where like, apparently there's a weekly murder, just like the murder to population ratio there is like extremely troubling. I love this about, um, like small town, like mysteries. And I deeply desire, like I have this, I have this idea for, I don't know if anyone will ever let me write it because I'm actually not sure what the market for this is, but I really want to write a like spoof of golden age mysteries where it's like set in a murder village. And it's like, people keep dropping dead in this like quaint village in the English countryside. And finally someone's like, huh, maybe we should go figure out why they're all dropping dead there. It seems bad. I mean, I would read that if that's helpful data for you. <laughs> Thank you. I will I will take that uh, data point back to my agent the next time she tells me. I don't know what the audience for this is. Okay, my other Americans writing British question, the other thing that would just completely paralyze me is the, the dialect. Do you have like an English friend who just like reads it and is like, we don't say that. So funnily enough, actually, one of my two best friends from high school is actually English, um, <laughs> but she does not do this or this role for me. Um no, I actually got an email from a reader a while back calling me out on an Americanism because I, which is one that I knew at some point and I was avoiding using it. And then apparently I completely forgotten, but we, they don't use gotten the way we do. They only use got. And I had completely forgotten that. And so it was, I was actually very flattered because this is like this British reader. And she was like, everything else about the dialogue is so wonderful. But I just wanted to point out that gotten is an Americanism. And I was like, hey, like that's only one. Like, I'm <laughs> yeah, that's honestly well. very impressive. <laughs> there's been, a, there's, and it's funny conversations like in, uh, with the copy editor sometimes, because with the first book they pointed out, which I hadn't even realized that I was doing was I was using whilst in dialogue and then while in like when it wasn't dialogue and it was just narration and they're like, well, that actually is consistent. And like, since they're British, they would say like, especially in this time period, they probably would say whilst. And since you were only doing it in the dialogue and it was like very consistent. And then it was only in the narration where you're using while they're like, we actually could leave it that way. And I was like, cool. Thank you for pointing that out. So I can be conscious of it going forward. So now I've deliberately adopted that rule. So whilst in dialogue, while in narration, I know there's like much secrecy around various projects and we don't want to talk about book five until book four is out so that we don't mess up the publicity. But do you have a project? Do you have a, are you planning what's next after the series? I have the problem that currently that I have too many ideas um, about a year ago. So like well before this was even a thing that I need to be worried about, I had a meeting with my agent where I sent her a word doc with just pitches for different like things that I could do next. And it was like two pages in Word. And she was like, okay, well, this is a lot. Um, And so she kind of like helped me focus more on ones that she thought had the most promise that I also seemed like the most enthusiastic about. But we're having another meeting in a few weeks, actually, to like to kind of revisit the same discussion. Because I, I have ideas for another Regency book. I have ideas for like other historicals that aren't Regencies. I have I, one single idea for a contemporary that I actually think is a really good like 
high concept premise. I just, I'm very nervous that they did writing a contemporary. So we're going to, we're going to have to chat and see. Um, so I, I genuinely have, I do not know what I will be writing next because I have, it's a good problem to have, but I have too many ideas. It is a good problem to have. I'm excited to see whatever it is that you land on. Those, those all sound like things I would be delighted to read. All right. Well, I do you want to take up too much of your time when you're literally mm. on deadline so good. This, has been, this has been so nice. I'm like, come on, excuse to not be staring at uh, my Google Docs. <laughs> this is delightful. Um, but before I send you back into comma, period, and semicolon <laughs> hell, um, can you recommend a couple of books that you have loved recently? Yes. So the one that I can't stop talking about, like... <laughs> I keep getting asked for book recs for like pieces that are going to be published around um, pub day. And I feel like I'm just shouting to the rooftops about this one, but hotel of secrets by Diana Biller is incredible. I, first of all, I think she, she's like a genius, just like this is her third book and they've all been absolute bangers. Like she writes just really phenomenal historical romance and possibly better than maybe anyone I've ever read. She really balances like humor and like very charming banter and like a great cast of characters with like really heavy, emotional, sometimes traumatic themes in a way that just like, she gets the balance. Perfect. This one is set in 1870s Vienna and Listen, I got a, I read this as a bound galley last summer because I basically complained so loudly on Instagram about wanting to read it that her editor saw it and like sent me a copy. Um, and I was like, oh, I knew I was annoying enough. Good things would start to happen to me. And I, so I read it last June and I basically have not stopped thinking about it since. I just think it is truly a phenomenal book. And then another one that I, this was not out yet. I'm sorry, everyone, but um, We Could Be So Good by Kat Sebastian is her book coming out this summer, which is a queer historical set in the 1950s in New York. So like a bit of a change from her after writing a bunch of Regencies and it's delightful. It's very like slice of life-ish in a way that I find really satisfying as a reader also what I would like to have more of in my books. And yeah, it's it's an absolute delight. That's another one that I, I read it a few weeks ago when I really shouldn't have been reading because I was on deadline and I was just like sneaking it like a constant because I didn't want to stop reading it. So Hotel of Secrets is a book club book. And the Cat Sebastian one, I have the bound galley of and I haven't read it because I feel like I'm going to love it so much that I need to be like in the appropriate mental state to read it. So I'm always like, oh God, I'm so tired. Like I can't read this book. And now I'll never read it because I'm like, I must be exactly ready to appreciate its perfectness. How I am with all of her books. Like I just, like she never misses. They're so good. She never misses. But they're also so like, I have so many feelings. Like I'm not always, I can't afford always to be so in my feelings. Yeah, no, that's, that's fair. (laughs) I, A, love that both of those recommendations are unusual time periods for historicals. I love the Regency, but I love that we're starting to get some more, we have a couple 20th century historicals coming out this year. I'm really hoping this is like signaling a shift because I would really, I like writing in the Regency and I would probably like to write in the Regency again in the future, but I would really like to do some other like less commonly done time periods. I'm like feeling optimistic about this now. Anyway, I will let you go. Um, thank you for making the time to no, chat on so deadline or ever. Me. I really appreciate it. This is so fun. <laughs> Congrats on To Swoon and To Spar, which thank you. everyone should read. I really enjoyed it. And yeah, I really look forward to seeing what's next. Thank you so much.
And there you have it. A huge thank you to Martha Waters for nerding out with me about putting the comedy in rom-coms and writing in the regency of our collective Hayer-based imagination. Martha's books really are a great entry point if you're a contemporary rom-com lover who is a little historical curious. If this conversation has made you want to pick up some of her books, you can find them all in our shop or on our website at www.meetcutebookshop.com. Her latest book, To Swoon and to Spar, came out April 11th. And that's all for this episode of the Meet Cute Book Pod. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Becca, the owner of Meet Cute Romance Bookshop in San Diego, California, and I hope you'll tune back in for more deep dives into romance writing, reading, and publishing. (laughs) 